you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 8. Happy Dad's Day to the dads that are in the room. Uh, God came up with the idea of dads, and so when our culture celebrates fatherhood on a day like today, we can wholeheartedly join our culture and say, Happy Father's Day. Dads are a good idea. Uh, I know I'm glad for it, not only what I've received, but what, what I'm now able to give. And uh, we have this incredible opportunity as fathers uh, before our kids are even cognizant that we exist. All these little babies we have in the church right now, they have no really clue uh, that this man is their father. He's just, he's just a guy who's there taking care of him. And, and before they're ever aware of it, we can demonstrate to our kids by God's grace who our Heavenly Father is and the way we love and provide and protect And as they get older and they begin to celebrate the fact that they have a father on a day like today by bringing you donuts maybe this morning or you got some good presents or goofy presents um, or they give you space to just watch soccer all day or work in the yard all day or whatever you enjoy doing on on Father's Day, um, you're able to look at your kids and say, everything good in me that I'm able to do is only because of Jesus. And so I'm not the superhero. Jesus is a superhero. And then on those days where we don't do it right, we're able to go to our our children and our spouses and say, here's more evidence that I'm not your Savior, more evidence that I'm not intended to be the Father who loves you perfectly. I can't. And so look beyond my failures to your Father in heaven, who will never fail you, who will never let you down, who will never leave you nor forsake you, and put your faith and your trust and your greatest hopes in Him. Uh, he is truly uh, your Father even more than I am your Father. And our Father in Heaven loves us and wants us to know that. And He especially loves those for whom Father's Day today is maybe not an easy day. Um, that this is a day mingled with uh, sweet memories, uh, but also pain and, and grief. Because uh, maybe Dad's no longer around. Uh, maybe Dad was never there. Uh, Maybe dad calls more pain than he brought blessing. And so for whatever reason, this day might be hard for some in this room. Uh, Know, again, you have a heavenly father who loves you so much that he's given his son so that you can have life, so that you can be part of a, a body of believers like this who will walk with you through whatever pain you may be experiencing today. So we want to pray especially for you as we thank God for dads. Father, we say that word all the time when we refer to you, but just help us to linger a little bit today and think about what it means to call the God who created all things Father. You are not just big and powerful and mighty. You are also close, and you care in ways that we can't even imagine. We thank you for your wisdom to create this thing called fatherhood that in some ways imperfectly helps us to learn from the very first days of our life who you are. We thank you for the the good times that we've gotten to experience with our fathers, the good times we get to experience as fathers. It's all by your grace. Father, we pray especially for those for whom this day is hard. Uh, 
May whatever pain um, is being experienced on this day by anyone in this room or anyone in our families, may, may it cause us to, to run from the pain to you. Where your arms are open wide and you are ready to embrace your children and to love them, to comfort them, to bring them joy and hope that is greater than circumstances in life going our way. We thank you that you are that kind of father who wipes away our tears. And one day you're going to bring us to a place where there will be no more tears. And there will be no more broken dads. And there will be no more goodbyes. Father, we thank you that you make all this possible through your son Jesus. So as we walk through this passage today, help us to see the gospel believe the gospel and to be drawn even deeper into a relationship with you, our Father. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What difference does it make to be a part of the Crossing Church? What do we have to offer or what do we get to enjoy that is unique from other groups that gather in our city, whether it be a church or just an organization or club. For those who aren't engaged with the local church, do we have anything that we could point to and and say, here are some tangible examples how being a part of this gospel community helps you thrive in the way that God has created you to thrive? Like imagine sitting down with someone who's not a part of a local church and convincing them being a part of the crossing is going to help you in these ways, help you to thrive as God created you to thrive. What would you point to? Obviously, the gospel is the beginning point of that. This understanding that we have to come to, that we're a sinner, we need a Savior, and Jesus alone is that Savior. But, but it's more than that. You begin with the gospel, then you continue with the gospel and see the gospel saturate to every area of your life. And so could you point to tangible ways in which that is being experienced in this body of believers, the gospel saturating all of our life and changing every part of our life? But that's being experienced by you. Is it that evident? The church in Corinth in the 50s AD would have, would have struggled to answer that question. They would have struggled to go to someone in the pagan culture and say, well, here's the difference it makes to be a part of this community beyond just believing the gospel, which is incredibly important. But here's how it's changing my, in my life. The, the pagan in that culture would be like, Really? Paul has addressed these issues throughout the book of Corinthians so far. This disunity, this factionalism that was, was, was uh, 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 describing this church, characterizing this church, where they were split up into these factions who were pledging loyalty to these human leaders. They were so divided, Paul spent the first four chapters just hammering their divisions. Stop being so divided. They were turning their back to gross sexual morality that Paul said even the pagans aren't committing sins like that. Men sleeping with their stepmoms suing one another in court. This is in the church. Committing gross sins of other sexual immorality that Paul had to say, flee from those things. Don't be enslaved to those things. You and your body are the temple of the very Holy Spirit of God. God himself dwells in your body. How can you unite with prostitutes? And then chapter 7, they're all confused about what to do about sex in marriage or sex as singles or should I stay single, should I stay married, should I get a divorce because this person is not a believer or they're not having sex with me. On and on, the confusion persisted. 
because the gospel was not saturating all of their lives, every area of their life. Paul's been addressing all of that. And what's happened in the Corinthian church and what we could be in danger of happening to us is instead of the gospel saturating all of our life, the culture could saturate our life so that there really is no distinction between us and the culture. This issue of unity comes back up again as the primary theme and overarching issue. And what we'll see today in chapter 8 and where we'll get finally through halfway through the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, at least by chapters, if we practice and live out what we'll see in chapter 8 today, this could really make us unique and distinct as a local church. How do we navigate all the differing opinions, perspectives, worldviews that are so prevalent in our culture today and still be one? Can we really disagree in a whole lot of non-essential areas and still be united? Or will we do what the culture is doing and retreating to these enclaves and these echo chambers where we're just surrounding ourselves with people who agree with us? As social media continues to fragment our culture into various camps, how do we genuinely do life together and be one, yet allow for a variety of opinion and thought and still be more known for our unity and love than factions that we're divided into are some kind of fake uniformity? We're demanding that everybody believe this about every single issue. This passage helps. So let's go through the entire passage, and I hope you'll see uh, what, what I was able to see this week, these principles throughout this passage that help us grow in our unity and diversity in a way that will glorify God, benefit each other as we apply knowledge with love. Let's read uh, the entire chapter first. Verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, we all, from whom are all things and for whom all, we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The first principle we see from this passage is, is number one, we have to affirm it is a gray area issue. So we have to be in agreement that it's a gray area issue. So obviously the context of this is written to a local church with believers all in the same church. We're not going to be able to come to an agreement about it being a gray area issue with believers in other churches necessarily or definitely people who aren't believers. So within a local church, people you're actually doing life with, 
there has to be an agreement, okay, there's differing opinions that are okay to have in this issue. We can agree to disagree in this issue. And the issue he names is food offered to idols. It's like the next thing on his list, now concerning. He's dealt with marriage and sexuality and singleness. Now concerning next, food offered to idols. We've said it before in this series, but it bears repeating. Unity is not the preeminent value of the local church. True essential doctrine would be an example of a more important value in a local church. Someone gets the character, the nature of God wrong, the nature of Christ, the nature of the Holy Spirit, the gospel, then, then you correct that, and if it, people won't believe that or adhere to that, then you disunify, you, you break apart. Somebody might have to go to a different church because this is what we believe about God, who He is, and, and what He's done. But what about issues where true essential doctrine is not at stake? What about issues where the Bible hasn't spoken explicitly black and white, right or wrong? Like this issue, food offered to idols. How do we stay united when we have vastly different opinions over what's right and good? The first step is agreeing. The Bible doesn't say clearly what to do, so this is a gray area issue. Now, for the Corinthians and even today in parts of Asia and Latin America, how to handle food and meat that's been used in the worship of idols is an ongoing issue. For us in the West, we don't really ever deal with this, unless you're talking about nachos at an LSU game or something. You're not really talking about food offered to idols. In Corinth, it was common for the pagan culture to believe that evil spirits could enter your body by attaching itself to food. So before eating, the meat would have to be offered at a pagan temple to a pagan god in order to keep that from happening. This meat would be eaten in a dining hall that's attached to the temple, where the god supposedly cleanses all evil spirits, or whatever's left over from that dining experience in the local temple would be taken to a local marketplace where it could be purchased, and it would be taken to a local home where it would be consumed uh, by private families or private parties of people. Meat was not a huge staple of the diet of the common everyday person. It would more often be eaten by the wealthy, but it would almost always be eaten by anyone in a social gathering setting. And so to refrain from eating this meat could have meant a total withdrawal from society and loss of opportunity to spread the gospel in any of these three areas, eating meat in the temple, eating meat that's been bought at the marketplace, or eating meat in the homes of people who have invited you over for a meal. On the other hand, there was this fear of bringing pagan practices and rituals into the church. There's, there's always that tension we're trying to resolve as, as, as Christians and as a church. We don't want to completely withdraw from society into these little conclaves and communes, but we also don't want to just adopt everything that the culture is doing so there's no distinction between the church and the culture. So separatism is wrong and so is syncretism. Both of those are wrong. There's this middle path that we have to, to, to figure out a way forward on that's it's not easy. It's difficult at times, depending on the issue. There's definitely a gray area issue, as we see from this passage. Now, often this chapter is compared to Romans 14, but there's significant differences between these two issues in two different churches. In Rome, they were debating about eating uh, or following the Jewish dietary laws. And the debate in Romans 14 is between the strong brother and the weak brother. 1 Corinthians 8, he's debating with those who have knowledge. Paul's having this debate with them, this discussion with them, about meat offered to idols, when and where is it appropriate to eat this meat, if it's appropriate to eat this meat, around whom. Another thing to remember as we're walking through this, um, this issue that he introduces at the beginning of chapter 8, he's going to deal with in 8, 9, and 10. This is three chapters all dealing with this one issue. So this is really a, a five-week series 
on how do we get along when we don't agree, you might say, within the local church. So it may seem like we're going a different direction next week in chapter 9, but we're really dealing with the same issue. So you have to come for all five weeks, is what I'm trying to say. For us, we have to make the same determination on issues we don't agree on. And sometimes it might be we don't agree if something's right or wrong, or sometimes it might be we don't agree about the implications of the issue and how to live out those implications practically. For, for example, alcohol is often cited as a gray area issue, especially in the Bible Belt culture. You go to some cultures, it's not an issue at all. People are drinking it like we drink sweet tea. But in the Bible Belt culture, it is an issue. The Bible never says explicitly, chapter and verse, drinking is always a sin. You're just not going to find that anywhere in the Scriptures. The Bible speaks of alcohol in positive and negative ways. And it, while it always speak, it's always sinful to be drunk, is there room for a believer to enjoy an alcoholic drink at certain times around certain people for certain reasons? It's a gray area issue. Gray area issues are not... Should I commit adultery? Should I steal? Should I lie? Should I cheat? Should I murder someone? Those are simple decisions. Gray area issues are much more nuanced. Could be tattoos, Eastern medicines, how and to what extent do we observe the Sabbath, what movies, music, or television is okay to watch or listen to or to allow your kids to watch or listen to, how we dress, how we parent our kids, how we educate our kids, issues related to how we use social media, how we spend our money, how we care for ourselves physically, should we take certain medications, politics and the opinions and role and purpose of government. Within a household, it gets even more specific and complicated. Between a husband and wife or between parents and children, we're often divided into conflict, not over essential doctrinal issues, but over small, seemingly seemingly small decisions and opportunities that we have to figure out day by day and week by week. And our difference of opinion as a husband and wife or a parent and a child can cause a lot of tension and conflict, at least in my house. I don't know about your house. The first step to to deal with that is recognizing it is a gray area issue. There's two paths, three paths, four paths. Any of them could be okay. And maybe the question is not, is this right or wrong? But it might be, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. So the question might be, is this helpful or beneficial to move forward down this path? Am I going to be enslaved or not enslaved if I move down this path? So when confronted with this division, is there a clear right or wrong position the Bible takes on it? And it's really important that we get this. Because the Bible reveals to us the character of God. And so when the Bible says something is sinful... It's not because God was in heaven and eternity past just arbitrarily choosing, well, this would be right and this would be wrong. It's because what he said is sinful and what is not sinful flows from his character. So lying is wrong because God is truth. Sexual immorality is wrong because God is pure. And on and on you can go. Murder is wrong because God gives life. Racism is wrong because God has put in the, every single human being the image of God. No one human being is superior over another human being based on the color of their skin or their ethnicity. So the first thing to ask is, is there a clear black and white biblical position? If not, then begin to consider some other things. The second thing we see from this passage is we have to recognize the limitations of knowledge and the necessity of love. He says in verse 1, Now we all know, or we know that, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. 
What you have in this chapter is essentially a conversation between Paul and these people of knowledge, this back and forth. And he's, he's having it with them, and you can see that when he, he has a statement, we know that. He says here in verse 1, we know that all of us possess knowledge. That's what this group was saying. Later on in verse 4, we know that there, an idol has no real existence. There's no God but one. That's what this group was saying to defend their position. Later in verse 8, he's going to state what he thinks is a coming objection that they might say. He's not saying they said it, but he's saying, now you might say this, but here's my answer to that. So you really have to see chapter 8 as this back and forth dialogue between Paul and these people who possess knowledge. The word for knowledge in the original language of the New Testament is gnosis. And while the Gnostics would not emerge as a group of heretics in the church until the second century, in several of Paul's letters, he's already dealing with the kernel of ideas that would later sprout into Gnosticism. And one of these truths that they valued was the supremacy of knowledge, a knowledge that you possess that made you better than supreme over those who didn't possess that knowledge, made you closer to God, more holy than those who didn't possess that knowledge. It was the arrogance of the enlightened one. We might today say this person is woke, implying that the one without knowledge is still asleep or dead. Now, Paul refers to this arrogance as someone who's puffed up, and this is what knowledge can do. If it's just knowledge, it will puff you up like a balloon, inflated but with no substance on the inside. And what is the substance that is missing? Paul would say in this passage, the missing ingredient to that knowledge is love. And we know this. The person who has all the facts, who knows all the right answers, who's quick to comment and correct on social media, they always want to flex their intellectual muscle. And this person does not do this in a loving way. It actually repulses people, pushes people away. Paul would even take it further and say, this unloving person who knows everything, in fact, does not have true knowledge. He says in verse 3, he does not know like he ought to know. Verse 2, rather. He thinks he knows, but he doesn't know. So what's he missing? He's missing love. Isn't that fascinating? Getting the facts right is important. Paul's not saying, well, it's okay to be wrong as long as you're loving somebody. He's not saying that. He's saying getting the facts right isn't enough. It has to be accompanied by love. And then Paul does something really interesting at the end of verse 3. If anyone loves God, you expect it to say, He knows God, but he didn't say that. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul flips it to this beautiful gospel-centered perspective. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Because what really matters more than anything else is this, not what you know, but that you are known. Known fully by God. All that we are, sins and all. And yet loved by God as a father loves his children. By the God who created you and sent his son to save you from your sins. So as a way of deflating this puffed up arrogance of the ones who know, he reveals their blind spot and crushes their love of knowledge more than love of people by emphasizing the love of God and being known by God. When we emphasize love that builds Rather than knowledge that is arrogant, in these kinds of issues, we evaluate our positions and the tone of our conversation through the lens of love. 
Like we begin to ask these questions. If I, if I take this position, if I have this discussion, or I go down this path about this issue, I can begin to ask some of these questions. Will, will people be drawn to God? Because this is not only what I'm communicating, but how I'm communicating it. Will the faith of Christians be stronger? Will people, even people we disagree with, have been glad to have met us and been around us? Do people feel safe to discuss this topic around us knowing they will be greeted more by our love than by our brains? Do people feel like we listen more than we correct them? Do people think that we're just here to win the argument or are we there to love them where they are and be patient with them as, they, as we learn together? These are all ways in which love with knowledge builds up rather than just having an empty knowledge that is puffed up. Now, we'll see more examples of what this love looks like as we walk through the passage because love is better seen than just talked about. But um, let's keep moving. The third thing that we have to do is we have to identify what we can affirm together. So after, after uh, determining that it is a gray area issue and after recognizing the limitations of love and the, nece- the limitations of knowledge and necessity of love, we have to identify what we can affirm together. Verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, here's what they say, we know that an idol has no real existence and there's no God but one. And then Paul goes on, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom we all from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul again restates one of their sayings. We know that an idol is not real. There's only one God. So these people were saying, this shouldn't matter. Idols aren't real gods. And Paul's like, you're right. They're not. There's only one God. He affirms, I agree. Now Paul's not saying people don't worship idols as God. He's saying idols aren't real gods because there's only one God. A strong affirmation of Jewish monotheism drawn from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. And because of that, pagan gods, idols, are just parts of creation that we call gods and worship as gods, but they're just pieces of creation. Stone, wood, metal. There's a a comical portrayal of this in Isaiah 44. He, talking about this person who worships these false gods, this idolater, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. It's comical. It's silly. It's foolish to worship false gods. You're you're burning it. You're cooking food over it. You're eating it. And now you're going to worship it. It'd be crazy if you came over to one of our houses and saw us bowing down before a piece of wood, worshiping it. Which is why we don't really have idolatry today, right? Idols aren't real gods. Now, looking ahead a bit, idols can be used by demonic and evil spiritual forces to help enslave or entrap humans. And so the worship of pagan deities can open the door for a person, even a Christian, to be influenced by demons. 
This will help explain in chapter 10 when Paul comes back to this issue explicitly why Paul prohibits the eating of idol meat in religious ceremonies. But here, that's not his focus in chapter 8. His focus here is to find common ground with those who have knowledge, who know idols are not real gods, and therefore eating meat that's been offered to an idol is meaningless, and those who don't have that knowledge and consider it practicing pagan idolatry. Now, why is that? Because their faith is in the one true most high God. Why do they understand it? What's amazing about what Paul says in those verses isn't the reaffirmation, just the reaffirmation of Jewish monotheism, but notice the strong Christology and equating Jesus with the one true most high God of the Old Testament. If for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The God of the Old Testament that Jews have been worshiping for thousands of years, take Jesus and put them side by side. Unique and distinct, but one God. And he could have added the Spirit to that as well. Now, some consider this part of an early creed of the church, and so you see from the very beginning of the early church, they were equating Jesus with the God of the Old Testament. This was not decided hundreds of years later in political church councils or conventions, you might say, but recognized from the very beginning by the church. What is true of God the Father is true of Jesus. They are one yet distinct. And again, it's another blow to the pride of the arrogant ones in Corinth to be reminded that God the Father and God the Son are are from whom we exist and depend on totally, which, which makes the value that I place on my knowledge small compared to the value of this God who knows me through his son Jesus. Who, who am I? Be reminded of who am I, Paul could say in this passage. Who do you think you are? You know this. You know that it's okay to eat this meat offered to idols because they're not real gods, which means you know this because you're worshiping the one true God. So who do you think you are? Why are you puffing yourself up in this knowledge? And identifying what they have in common it is no small thing. It's actually a very important thing because if we can focus on what we have in common that is essential and strong, there can be room for disagreement in less essential matters. But it takes time to actually sit down in relationship with people and have those conversations. You can't just go through Twitter and see everything they posted and liked and, oh, now I know who that person is. I see who they follow. I see who follows them. You have to actually have conversations and be in relationship with these people. And we'll see that we have strong bonds rooted in Christ. That's better than just trying to get people to conform to your ideas because you argue better or you found a better video on YouTube to show them that makes better sense or, or to have people just, you live to have people affirm your rightness or, um, or, or, or trying to have some fake uniformity. This can be as simple as a husband and wife reminding each other, you know, we're on the same team. Button heads over this issue related to the kids, related to our schedules, related to whatever. But let's, let's just remind ourselves, we, we want the same things. We are for the same things. We, are, we have this bond in Christ. We're partners in the gospel. We want our kids and our family to exude and enjoy and live this out. Let's be reminded of what we have in common. That's part of what the Corinthians need to be reminded of, that what they agree on is far greater than what's dividing them. But then fourthly, you you have to identify the differences. Paul alludes to this in verse 7. 
He says, however, not all possess this knowledge. The people in the know know it, but the people who don't know don't. Because of how they grew up in the pagan culture, worshiping idols, that association for the people who did not have this knowledge was so strong, it held more influence over them than these new larger truths of God and His gospel. Notice, they genuinely held these beliefs. It's not that they knew that they were wrong and they're continuing to pursue what they knew was wrong. Like they believed that they went and ate the meat that had been offered to these idols in these pagan temples that they were practicing pagan idolatry. It's how they grew up. It's how they were raised. It's all they knew. It's not that they, well, I know there really is only one God, but I'm, I'm just going to choose not to believe that and hold on to what I've always believed. It wasn't that, that wasn't the case. They have a weak conscience, Paul would say. They were immature, probably new believers. Because their consciences were weak, they believed they were defiling themselves. They didn't possess the knowledge they needed to know that this activity doesn't change who they are in Christ. And so if they were engaged in these activities, they felt shame and guilt, regret, defilement, dirtiness. They saw themselves as sinners. Isn't that amazing? Those in the same church with knowledge could engage in activity that completely free from any guilt or condemnation while their brothers were heaping guilt and condemnation and shame on themselves. Same activity. Those with the knowledge were free from that. It's really tempting to say or think something like, well, just tell them. Why don't you just tell them? Like, let's have a Friday night Bible study. Let me post the right article and have them read it. Then they'll be convinced of the truth. Let me, let me talk to them. I can put it in a way that they'll believe it, and then they can go enjoy the things that we're enjoying. Yeah, it's that simple. As we see every day in our nation on issues we disagree on, people are changing their minds left and right when presented with new information. There will be a call to the weak to do something, as we'll see later in chapter 10, but Paul doesn't start there. He puts the entire weight of responsibility on those who are strong, on those who have knowledge. Not to crush the weak in their knowledge, but to build them up in love. And that's the fifth thing that we see. Love your brother or sister in Christ by not sinning and flaunting your freedom and causing them to sin. Verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul continues this debate with the strong by stating what he might see as one of their objections of verse 8. Oh, now you might say, well, it doesn't really matter if we eat or don't eat. It doesn't commend us or change our relationship with God. Yeah, but, Paul says, put yourself in the shoes of the weak. That is true, but empathize with your brother who doesn't see it that way. See things from their perspective. Love them. Sympathize with them. Romans 15, 1 through 2 On the heels of Romans 14, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. To bear is to get up under the load they are carrying and help carry the weight. They're being crushed by this lack of knowledge. So get under that weight and help pick it up with them. This is not something you can do from a distance, but it's only something that can be done in relationship, close proximity. So standing to the side like the arrogant, haughty Corinthians with knowledge and scoffing or ridiculing 
or ostracizing those with less knowledge is not helpful and is not loving. And so is flaunting your freedom. I'm just going to do it because I know it's okay. I don't really care if they have a problem with it. He says in verse 9, this could become a stumbling block. Now, we think stumble, we're like tripping on a rolled up piece of carpet or a tree root. Depending on your age and your agility, ability, you may stumble and keep walking. You may stumble and fall and then get up. You may stumble and not get up and need help getting up, depending on how bad the stumble is. This is not what the Bible describes as a stumbling block. It's not just tripping and you're kind of embarrassed. Biblically, a stumbling block is something that describes a hindrance, a roadblock. Like you can't keep going forward. The path is cut off. It's much more serious than than just tripping. It's blocking the path of someone to Christ. And what, what we see here is what might be safe and okay for one Christian isn't okay for another one. For those who like cookie cutter and easy rules that apply to everyone the same way, this just drives them nuts. So much ambiguity. Well, welcome to humanity. Welcome to the body of Christ. We're people. All unique, and God hasn't designed this to be something that will work apart from depending on Him or apart from being in relationship with each other. He he hasn't just given us a formula, just do steps one, two, three every day and you're fine. No, we have to have Him every single day helping us, and we have to have each other to do this right and well and good. So whatever it looks like, we never want to have that charge laid against us that we were the one who cut somebody off from Christ, from enjoying Christ to the fullest or experiencing Christ to the fullest. You, you see, it gets even more serious. Paul makes it even more serious in verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? First notice Paul names the specific issue he has in mind, eating meat in a pagan temple. So of the three ways this meat could be engaged with, Paul has narrowed his focus to one of them. This is not buying meat in the marketplace. This is not eating meat in someone's home. This is actually going to the pagan temple where eating the meat is participating in the worship of this pagan god. And if a weaker, more immature brother or sister with less knowledge than you sees what you're doing, they'll think, well, I know it's idol worship. It's all I've ever known it to be, but they're doing it, and they've followed Jesus longer than me, so I guess I'm supposed to keep worshiping idols along with Jesus. In this case, the one with knowledge is leading the weaker brother into the worship of idols, into idolatry, into sin, by them following our example. So this is more than just someone being offended. Like sometimes in our hyper-politically correct culture, we think we have to create these environments where no one is offended. That's not really possible. Certainly, we shouldn't be intentionally offensive, but don't cite 1 Corinthians 8 as justification not to cause a brother or sister to just be offended. Are we causing them to sin? Are we putting a roadblock between them and Christ? This is also important because there are some people and groups of people who can be so legalistic that being offended is their spiritual gift. They have so many rules. They have life boiled down to so many black and white parameters that they live offended. It doesn't matter what you do, you're going to offend them. Those are usually within the church. That's not the person we have to take into consideration here. Legalistic Larry, we don't have to worry about him in that case. 
The question isn't, are they offended, but will they be led into sin? Will you cause someone to engage in sinful behaviors if they follow your example and live life like you live life? That's the question, even for legalistic Larry. If they live life like you live life, will they engage in sin? According to their conscience. You know it's not a sin, but according to their weak conscience, it is a sin. In other words, do we flaunt our freedom causing our brother or sister to sin? Then verse 11, Paul tightens his argument. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. By flaunting our freedom rooted in this knowledge that some have, Paul says not, that, that not all possess, we are destroying our weaker brother by leading them to engage in sin. Sin destroys, always. There's, there's no sin that we can engage in where it doesn't bring destruction. None. There's no safe sin. It's all destructive. We should never play around with sin or get comfortable with sin. And Paul says, the stronger brother leading the weaker brother into do something that they know is sin, you are in fact destroying them who we are destroying the one for whom Christ died. Like we're, depending on the issue, we're all over the place in this room. There are some issues where you might be considered the one with knowledge, and there are some issues where you might be considered the weaker brother. So depending on the issue and on whatever issue, if you are ever in the position of having the knowledge, being the stronger brother, we should have this verse just ingrained in our minds, in our hearts, when considering the ramifications of us enjoying our liberties, our freedom. Christ died for our brother, and yet we won't forego our liberty out of love for him. How valuable is your freedom? Is it more valuable than the life and the soul of your brother for whom Christ died. Some of these issues of liberty that we experience as the crossing, I want to know more about where, where are we laying down those liberties than where are we enjoying those liberties. That's just as important to be able to ask, answer that question. Christ saw them as valuable enough to die for them. Will we love them enough to lay down our freedoms? Like feel the weight of this lack of love. I want my way more than I care about my brother. I want to enjoy what I want to enjoy more than I care about my brother. Think of all that Christ went through for them to become part of the body of Christ. All that Christ gave up for them to become part of the body of Christ. And yet... The stronger brother at times, if he's not loving, won't lay down these liberties. And if that were not enough, Paul takes it one step further in verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their consciences when it is weak, you sin against Christ. It's not just that your lack of love destroys your brother for whom Christ died. It is actually sin. Think about that. Those with knowledge, Paul would say in verses 4 through 6, you're right. Your position is right. You pass the theological test. You have the right position. But that knowledge applied without love is, in fact, sinful. 
This is like a precursor to 1 Corinthians 13 that's coming. Where Paul paints a picture of the preeminence of love. Paul says, in fact, we, we, we see here the limits of right theology. It's not, it's not that wrong theology is okay. It's not okay. But even right theology applied without love is wrong and, in fact, sinful, sinning against your weaker brother and, in fact, sinning against Christ because Christ so identifies with, the weaker, with, with his people, the church. It's not just about winning the argument, church. It's not just about being in the know or being right. It's how we live out this truth in community with those who don't know or those we don't agree with. And as we see throughout the New Testament, we can't just willingly sin against our brothers because we are also sinning against Christ. So when considering all of this, Paul's closing statement makes a lot of sense as a demonstration of love. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul lovingly lays down any claim to enjoy this freedom so as not to put any hindrance in the way of his brother for whom Christ died. He actually takes it a step further. He makes a vow to give up all meat. Paul is willing to be a vegetarian. That's how far he's willing to go. That's crazy. Paul's willing to be a vegetarian in order to love the weaker brother so that he would not stumble. Paul, most importantly, is willing to allow his life to be completely rearranged for the good of his brother. In other passages like Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to see admonitions for the weaker brother to also not be judgmental and to give in to these disputes. But this is not where Paul begins in 1 Corinthians 8. He begins by placing all of the responsibility on the one with knowledge. Why is that? Because learning and growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ takes time. How do you stay in relationship with your brother whom you disagree with while he learns and gains knowledge? The one with the knowledge has to give and teach and explain. You, the stronger brother has to empathize. They have to give. They have to rearrange their life in order to accommodate the weaker brother. He has to lay down his rights to benefit the weaker brother. Because he's not just going to change his mind overnight. It takes time to learn and grow. And in that process, we need to be in a relationship with each other. So somebody's going to have to give. And Paul says, you who have knowledge, give. Serve. Lay down your rights to love your brother well. These five principles found in this passage apply to so many situations in really nuanced ways. It wouldn't really profit me to take time to walk through some examples. I thought about doing that. But I'd, I'd rather us just take these in relationship with each other and, and, and people that we need to get to know and learn perspectives of other people and be in discussion with them about how to move forward in a loving way. Like, this does not allow some kind of cookie-cutter policy that makes life plain and simple. For those who just want the Leslie Nope organized binder to help them go through life and make all the decisions for them, this is no help. It requires giving and serving and listening and learning. And by God's grace, if we can become a people who will live this out, we can become an incredibly diverse church that can lovingly, graciously bear with one another through our differences, and we can genuinely show this city something unique, something only possible through Jesus and the gospel. We're not there yet, but by God's grace, we can get there. And you sit down and have that conversation with that unchurched person. Let me tell you about the crossing, man. 
we got people from all these different areas of life. We don't have the same educational levels. We don't live in the same neighborhoods. We don't go to the same schools. We don't have the same careers. We're not from the same parts of this, this region. We don't have the same color skin. We don't have the same amount of money. Man, we are all about Jesus. And he is so amazing and so powerful and so incredible. We can be very different and be one because of him. By God's grace, we can be that church. All possible because of the gospel. That's the, the last principle. I didn't put it on the slide, but that doesn't mean it's not important. It's, it is the key. See the gospel making all this possible. If we love God, you see it throughout this passage. If we love God and are known by God, who is God? God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who created all things. If we remember that this brother and sister from whom I disagree with and am struggling to love, if I remember in that temptation to be angry at them or to be mad at them because they, don't, they, won't, they won't believe me. They won't, they won't conform to my position. If you remind yourself, Christ died for them too. Christ loved them enough to give his life for them too. They are my brother and sister forever. Then I see a stronger bond and stronger connection with them that necessitates me loving them. No food doesn't commend us to God. We're commended to God only through the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus but if we are commended to God through his son, Jesus, we are incredibly secure. Secure enough that we can rearrange our entire lives for the sake of each other. Have our lives turned upside down. Sacrifice and give whatever it takes to give in order to love our brother and sister in Christ. And to walk through life with each other. So the application is, is always see accurately that we are incredibly sinful and we desperately need a Savior and Jesus alone is our Savior. So repent and believe in the gospel and declare your public identification and allegiance to Jesus through baptism and church membership. That's always the application of every sermon we preach. But then, take this with you, live in such close community with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only we see how we differ, because we're actually having real conversations with each other, but we see how we can love each other through our differences. Not causing one another to sin, but building one another up in love. So go be in community and talk and discuss how to apply these truths to various situations. Maybe as a missional community, let's, let's apply these principles to this situation, X. Maybe you want to do alcohol. That's an easy one. Pick another one. Maybe in DNA group. Let's see if we can apply these principles to this particular topic that causes division in the local church or in our culture in the South. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful what you make possible through your son, Jesus. And we are so overwhelmed with joy at what Jesus makes possible in this, this body of believers called the church. God, we, we just want to be that people. We want our city to see in us the presence and reality of Jesus. More than, way more than how amazing we are, we want to see how amazing Jesus is. And so help us to hear Help us to apply, help us to repent, help us to obey for your glory. As we sing, as we give, as we share in, in communion together, just let us respond in, in overwhelming worship and, and affection and adoration for Jesus. Let us sing of how great Jesus is, that you would do these things, that you would make this kind of people possible. Ah, oh, you're so good. Help us to enjoy you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.